If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or a crisis, please reach out immediately to the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. The Lady Parts Doctor podcast is a health podcast focusing on issues that affect women and those assigned female at birth. However, it is for everyone. This is our safe place to talk about things that matter to you involving your spiritual, mental, and physical health. It's not medical advice. It's medical information. We talk and I give you the evidence with a little of my personal and professional experience sprinkled in. So sit back, relax, grab your water, coffee, tea, wine, kombucha, whatever it is, and let's go. Welcome to the Lady Parts Doctor podcast. I'm Dr. Stephanie Hack, the Lady Parts Doctor, and I am so happy that you are joining me again today because I love it when we chat and we always have a lot to talk about and they're always great conversations and I always leave feeling like we've discussed something really impactful and I hope you do too. Last week, we began a discussion with Dr. Karen Abdul, a psychiatrist and trauma expert of Beryllium Psychiatric Services. And this particular conversation circled around suicide. This is part two of that conversation. So in case you went past the title, you didn't read the title and you missed the prompt at the beginning of the podcast, this particular episode is a continuation of a discussion about suicide. If this is not something that you want or are ready to talk about right now, switch to another episode. We have like over 50 from before this, or just jump on on the next episode. But we're going to continue our discussion today. But before we do, I just want to take a moment to again discuss why this is such an important topic. And I know you're like, okay, Dr. Hack, we get it. It's suicide. It's important. But it's not just that. In my day-to-day work, I still interact with physicians quite frequently. And also, I'm still a person requiring appointments. I have like a whole ton of kids now and they need appointments too. And so often I find myself interacting with physicians. And then when I start to tell them my story, and where I was in medicine and how I came to a decision that the way that I was healing people, although I loved it, it was no longer serving me. It was not helping me. I was unhappy doing this work and it was making me not enjoy the work as much. And so when I talk to them about that in my experience, they almost always like let out a sigh of relief as if they've been holding something in. And then they tell me their stories and they tell me their experience and what has made them unhappy and how they don't enjoy the work as much. And I hear this, I mean, without fail, it happens almost all the time. And when I hear these stories about physician suicide, I just think about all of these people who are unhappy doing this very grueling, very stressful work and dealing with many different pressures, seeing things that are quite traumatic, but who are keeping it all together because we love to heal and we want to help you and we want you to heal. 
but they're not tending to themselves. And I think about how they learned to do that. Where did they learn to do that? Where did they learn to prioritize everyone else's needs over their own? And really it's residency. That is a big part of it. And I'll give you an example to just from my residency years. So you might be on a particular rotation, specifically labor and delivery. And on this labor and delivery rotation, you are always going to be there Monday through Friday. Okay, you're Monday through Friday during the day, you're going to cover labor and delivery. But two to three weekends out of the month, you're also going to need to cover labor and delivery, either maybe Friday night into Sunday night, uh, not including Saturday, but like Friday night, then you're off Saturday, and then you go back in Sunday night, or maybe you're going to do a 24-hour call covering, and that means you're on labor and delivery for 24 hours, so Saturday morning to Sunday morning. You would do that weekend call shift, and then your Mondays through Fridays, you'd be working 12-hour shifts. So let's say you would start your day at 7 a.m., on labor and delivery on Monday, and then sign out would be at 7 p.m. And maybe sign out would be at 5 p.m. on some days, but if you had a lot of patients, if you were very busy, and you're actually, sign out means when you transfer the patients to someone else, you're telling them about the patient. So if you had a lot of patients, that could be a two hour sign out. So really you'd end up being there for 12 hours. So you would work these long days, Monday through Friday, and then come in on the weekend Well, you're not sleeping. So if you think about that, people are tired, they're exhausted, they're working nonstop. It's making it very difficult to prioritize other things in their lives. You, are, you might get depressed. A lack of sleep precipitates a lot of mental health conditions. We just talked about this when we talked about maternal mental health conditions um, in the podcast, I think two, two podcasts ago. And no, three podcasts ago. Yes, three podcasts ago. So this is the kind of schedule that many, many residents work. So it's no wonder that you might come in from medical school being very excited, but then once you enter this grueling training process, it can be difficult. And not to mention there's peer pressure because everybody else is doing it. So why can't you do it? Everybody else is getting this work done. Why can't you get it done? Everybody else is coming in, working with, that, with limited sleep, doing this and that. Why can't you do that? And so there's a lot of pressure that we put on one another. And then you're also fostering this team aspect. You feel like you have to do it because if I don't do my work, then that means that my overworked colleagues need to do the work for me. So already we're setting up for a very stressful process. So I just wanted to give for anyone who's not in medicine, if you haven't done a residency, just a little background as to why someone might be more stressed out, why someone might be more depressed once they get into residency training and how that could continue with them, especially for someone who already has a history of mental health conditions. So now let us continue our conversation about physician suicide. How are the completions versus attempts different for female physicians versus the general population? Okay, so in general, women attempt suicide at rates three times the rates of men. And in general, men actually complete suicide twice as much as women do. Okay. In great contrast, in the world of physicians, 
female physicians attempt at the same rates as the general population, but complete 130% higher. Higher. They, Why? They die by suicide. Well, I guess that's because you said that they know what to do. Exactly. So a lot of the times women in general tend to attempt by less violent means. Mm-hmm. They're less likely to pick up a gun. Mm-hmm. Female physicians know exactly what to do, even if they want to die by overdose, even if they, well, I can't say want to die, even if the illness drives them mm. to die by overdose, because I don't know that people want to die. Yeah. Can you speak more about that? I like how you made that separation of that I, as a person, am like, let me go do this. I'm in a healthy mind thinking this versus mm-hmm. the illness making me think that this is what I want to do. Can you talk a little bit about that? So in psychiatry, we talk a lot about cognitive distortion and almost every mental illness involves cognitive distortions. And what is that? What is cognitive distortion? For someone who well, where where people begin to see things outside of the reality. So let's say, for example, someone was a physician in their in their country. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say somebody came from somewhere in the British system, like Nigeria or Trinidad and Tobago, where I'm from, mm-hmm. you know, Jamaica, somewhere. And they completed residency, they were an attending physician, and they came here. Residency in those countries is extremely tough. Sometimes people work seven days a week. It's a, I had a friend who went through residency uh, in Jamaica at mm-hmm. the um, medical school in Jamaica. And she, it was really, really crazy. They don't have the protections that we have. They don't. They work for over 100 hours a week. And this is in primary care. This is not even surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I I remember uh, a friend from who came here from Nicaragua saying that he worked so hard at one point. He had a seizure disorder and he became so stressed that it induced seizures. Mm -hmm. He was they had him working for weeks on end with no break. So there, these are intensely difficult residency programs and the mm-hmm. perception that somehow one program is superior to the other because one exists in the United States and the other exists elsewhere. That's not, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe treating practices may differ and it's mm-hmm. important to educate about how people are treated in the United States, but the intensity of the work is the same is the same and then you know people come here after having successfully completed a residency program and they are stressed and beat down so much by the messaging they get from racism that they actually begin to articulate i don't think i can do it Mm. when they've already done it yeah that's a cognitive distortion Okay. That that makes sense. Yes. It's it's difficult not to internalize. And this is the whole point of marketing, right? Like 
Mm -hmm. Marketing is just an example. It's a different example, but you're constantly being marketed to about many things to the point that you're like, oh, um, it would be great to have defined curls. I'm just looking to see in my picture, like, oh, it's great to have defined curls, these products, defined curls, defined curls, defined curls. And eventually you're like, you know what? Maybe I should get defined curls. Like maybe I right. will buy that product. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. But being constantly told you're not good enough. You're not good enough. How did you get here? It's affirmative action. It's, mm -hmm. you know, um, who did you know? And so on and so forth. You're mm -hmm. not capable. Even if you finish, you won't be as good. That messaging, even a very strong, resilient person who has a very good sense of themselves, if you get that messaging nonstop all day, some part of you will internalize that messaging. And I would argue, and just to make a sense, it's very different for people who, for Black people who come into this country, have not had that experience that Black people who grew up in this country have. So, and, and you know, it's not doing us any favors either, but we, it is a message that we have learned to strive to get beyond. But yeah, coming in, feeling like a good sense of yourself and constantly getting that message, it's its difficult. It's really shocking to the system. And it's, it's, two, it's different experiences of the same message. Yeah. Whether you come as an immigrant or you grow up, but that internalization can be very real for both communities, for all these communities. The stress of that can cause that distortion. I love that she used this example because racism is continuous negative messaging to people about the color of their skin, right? Let's really break it down. Studies have shown that continued negative messaging has a negative impact on people. And I'm just going to give an example. There is a study out of the UK where they looked at 293 studies that were reported in 333 articles. And this, these articles were from 1983 to 2013. And mostly these studies were conducted in the United States. So they analyzed these studies, just looking for random effects. And they found that racism was associated with poor mental health, including depression, anxiety, psychological stress, and various other outcomes. Okay. Poor mental health. They also found that racism was associated with poor general health and poor physical health. This negative messaging that these accomplished people constantly received when they came from another country continued to impact them. And I know I made a comparison between people who are considered black that come from other countries versus people who are considered black that live in this country. And my point there was really to say or to highlight the difference between constantly receiving negative messaging and how you just become so conditioned to it that you strive, you achieve in spite of it. And to kind of highlight the difference between what that must feel like to never have received that messaging and then to come to this country and receive that messaging and just how jarring that could be. But the messaging is all bad. And as we saw with that study that I mentioned and with many, many other studies, but that particular one is just an example, that messaging leads to negative health outcomes for everyone. And because you know I always come with the receipts, <laughs> I'm gonna talk a little bit more about this. So there was another study, it's basically a survey of black residents and their perception of the impact of race on 
their medical training. In this study, the researchers spoke with 19 participants, 10 of whom were male, and they gave them the survey with just open-ended questions. And they found multiple themes, but participants' sense of being a highly visible minority very much affected each of these themes. And the four major themes that they found from the narrative were discrimination, differing expectations, social isolation, and consequences. These participants rarely reported overt discrimination, okay, but, you know, they probably experienced a lot of microaggressions. The participants perceived Blacks to be punished more harshly for the same transgression and expected to perform at lower levels than white counterparts. So that goes along with exactly what Dr. Abdul was just talking about with that cognitive distortion. When you're constantly getting this negative messaging about what's expected of you, you're incapable. Okay, so yeah, you know, you're incapable, you're not as good. So they were expected to perform at lower levels than their white counterparts. Participants' suspicion of racism as a motivation for individual and institutional behaviors was tempered by self-doubt. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're constantly told that you're incapable, you're not as good, then you might start to experience some self-doubt. Maybe I'm not as good. Maybe I'm not as capable as my colleague, right? Unpublished data from the ACGME, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, you remember us talking about that in the last episode. Unpublished data from the ACGME showed that although Black residents account for about 5% of all residents, they account for nearly 20% of those who were dismissed in 2015. So we're talking about it. We're not making it up. And Stat News had a really interesting article about this, and I'm going to put it on the blog. But this has been a very long tangent. That was necessary. Let's keep going. For depression, what a lot of the times, so I'm just talking in general about very common distortions Mm -hmm. that I have worked with. This is not, and I should say this, particular to any patient that I have. Mm-hmm. There are some common distortions that I have found when people are thinking about killing themselves. One distortion is that my family will be better off without me. Mm-hmm. And this, you saying that just makes me think of postpartum psychosis. Mm-hmm. Well, even postpartum depression, you know, and it's yeah, very interesting, yeah. you know, in postpartum depression, you know, my children will be better off mm-hmm. if I'm not here. And then for the unfortunate women who struggle with homicide ideation, mm-hmm. oftentimes, and I, I have not actually personally had a a patient who had this thought, but I have learned from those who work as experts in that field that women will believe that the children will be better off if they did not exist mm. in the world. Taking it a step further, yeah. So, yeah, so even their attempts to hurt their children are coming from this place of my child will be better off if if they weren't here. Yeah, it's this whole, it's the illness, the illness it's speaking the illness. and distorting your perception of reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Another very common distortion is uh, people don't care. Mm. It doesn't matter 
to anyone, whether I live or die. And what's the interesting thing, one of the things that we ask about when we are assessing suicide risk is protective factors. And if the person is still able to have the insight to say, the reason I'm not doing this is because it would hurt my mother too much, then I rank that person at a different risk from somebody who says, it doesn't matter. Mm. It doesn't matter to anyone, you know, they, if, if I were to die, you know, my family will just go on. Mm -hmm. Those are two different risk levels. And then the third risk level is if I were to die, my family would be even better off because Mm -hmm. then they wouldn't have to worry about me. Yeah. So, you know, when we're thinking about risk, suicide risk, now all of these are high. All of these people are thinking about suicide. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the person who I would say, hey, I think this person needs to be hospitalized versus somebody who I could work with outpatient, the level of distortion is important, okay? Um, But we tend to think of cognitive distortions only in the case of something like schizophrenia, where the distortion is so obvious because the person is hearing things that no one else is hearing. They're maybe seeing things that no one else is seeing. Um, They may be feeling things or perceiving things that no one else is perceiving and we're very clear okay that's a cognitive distortion you right. know um but this perception these perceptions and depression are cognitive distortions and they're very very dangerous they're very dangerous um and people are at risk of dying yeah you know with And here we come sort of to the philosophical piece of why I think physicians are at such high risk of suicide. Mm -hmm. There have been several societal messages over the past several years that have been deeply injurious. Okay. One of them is actually messaging coming from the general public that physicians do not have the best interest of their patients at heart. Mm, that is that is a big one and it's so layered and it's so complicated. But that mm-hmm. is, I mean, I can tell, I post all kinds of things on social media and I posted a story about this thing that this physician had done for a friend of mine and it got like the most likes and most views. And I'm like, but this is not representative of most physicians. <laughs> Like this was just a circumstance where this person made a mistake. It wasn't, I don't think she did it on purpose, but yeah, Mm -hmm. that perception is, is one. Yeah. It's out there. I Mm -hmm. agree. Mm -hmm. It is out there. These doctors don't care to the point where I, I don't know if you've seen these slogans that say brains of a physician, heart of a nurse. No. You've never that's seen damaging. That? I've never seen that. It's deeply, I mean, that's deeply damaging. I actually both, saw it. Actually, 
in a gift shop to both right (laughs) Right. because the implication is that nurses are not as smart right and that physicians don't have a heart and they they actually i actually saw this advertised on i can't remember where but one of those places that was selling things like on a mug it's really like amazon I don't remember where Etsy, Amazon, somewhere. But like, who was it for? Oh, I guess brains of. It's for nurses. Ah, it's for nurses. Okay, but it's truly, truly awful. And there's this implication that we don't really care about our our patients. Yeah, and a lot of the times, the the patient will say to me, "Well, you are different." And those of us in the black community, we are so familiar with that. It's right. like, yeah, everybody's terrible and everybody is whatever, but right. you, you're the special one. Yeah. And you know, that's that's not real. And it's not why physicians go into medicine. Right. You know, we 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 certainly, I mean, there's certainly if we wanted to make money, smart some of the smartest people in the world go into medicine. If we wanted yeah. to purely make money that is not it. Do something different <laughs> <laughs> yeah medicine is not it <laughs> medicine is not it there are easier ways to make like yeah. millions and billions of dollars right so that is one thing that's deeply damaging okay you know another thing that's deeply damaging is the way that the practice of medicine has changed it has changed to the point where we cannot our jobs the way we want to yes and that is one of the reasons the attrition rates in medicine are so high Mm -hmm. at this point you know i was reading that i think like a hundred and seventeen thousand physicians left medicine in 2021 and only forty thousand came in (laughs) yeah so i haven't left left but i did Mm -hmm leave corporate medicine and create my own private practice where I can practice the way that I want to. And there's so much more joy in my practice because it is so hard to feel. We took an oath Mm -hmm. to first do no harm and to second do good. Mm -hmm. First do no harm, second do good. And it's so hard to be sitting there in your office feeling like you are not doing good for your patients Mm -hmm. because you don't have the time you don't have the resources Mm -hmm. and you you are not being listened to Mm -hmm. as a physician as the person who understands the most about health Mm -hmm. of anyone you're not being listened to in terms of what is actually needed and that part right there is what is i think a big part of why people have the first impression you know, it's not necessarily your physician that you're unhappy with. It is the healthcare system in general. And you are working with someone who is trying to survive within the system. Are there doctors that aren't great? Yes, there are. There, there are people in all professions who are not who great. great. But, you know, the general, like people who go into medicine really want to help people so much so that they devote, you know, they give away their 20s, sometimes mm-hmm. their 30s to and go work all of these hours to be able yep. to obtain these licenses and degrees to be able to take good care of you. And then you find yourself 
handcuffed, you know, right behind your back, I should say, unable mm-hmm. to practice mm-hmm. the way you actually want to practice. We had, I remember a pediatrician that I worked with, she had 15 minute appointment slots for a kid. Listen, How I, is that possible? How is it possible <laughs> to see a child who can't tell you what is wrong with them in 15 minutes and like see them, diagnose them, get everything together and send them on their way and then not be stressed trying to be on top of that. It's not possible. And you know, what's, what's interesting. I remember when they cut the primary care physicians initial visits down from an hour to 30 minutes and then from 30 minutes to 15 minutes in one of the health centers I was in. And it was like, this is, you're creating an impossibility here. You're asking Mm -hmm. us to work in the realm of impossibility. Mm -hmm. We cannot do justice to our patients, see them for the very first time only in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then double book them or triple book them, you know, with multiple at the same time. And I remember for me, like one of the sentinel uh, points in my career where I determined that I had to make changes. There were two sentinel points in my career. The first was where I was being asked to see my refugee patients in Mm. 15 minutes. Mm. Mm. And of course it was impossible. So people were sitting, waiting in the office for like 30, 40 minutes while I saw the patients, everything was getting backed up. I felt like a sense of, a deep sense of failure because I wasn't seeing my patients on time. Right. Then I was in the clinic, I was supposed to be there for, you know, 10 hours. I would be there for like 12 hours, 13 hours, whatever, finishing up notes Mm -hmm. and making phone calls and everything because my administrative time was absorbed mm-hmm. in seeing patients for whom it was impossible to see deeply traumatized people who had lost children, who mm-hmm. had been sexually and physically violated. Who it was impossible to see them in fifteen minutes. That just who probably don't speak English. <laughs> you know, may or may not speak with, English. A, with an interpreter, right? From the vast majority with an interpreter. And yeah. different kinds of interpreters from different places in the world. Yeah. Right. And different. Oh, that's insane. Cultures, different communication styles, mm. different levels of vulnerability. Right. Because who's just going to start speaking to you? <laughs> Telling, oh, this is what happened. I just witnessed this life altering event and I'm meeting you for the first time. So let me just sit down and tell you all about it. Like, right. I mean, if I'm speaking to an English speaking suburban person who has had a sexual violation, mm-hmm. it takes a while. Mm-hmm. It takes a while for that person to tell me. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine an Iraqi or Palestinian woman, Muslim, deeply religious, mm. for whom being pure is a part of her identity deeply deeply embedded identity yeah Yeah, it's it's not gonna happen so creating these impossibilities like it it just was not possible for me yeah and i realized i I could not do it yeah you know 
And then the other, the second piece of it, and this is going to raise some eyebrows, is the change in psychiatry. And I must say, this is probably something that's a little bit more, more specific to psychiatry okay. than other spaces. But the change in psychiatry where people who were not medically trained were becoming the directors of the departments. Okay. Now, there are people who are not medically trained who have fabulous administrative skills and who are very bright and who are great at what they do. Mm -hmm. It does not change the fact that they're not medically trained. Correct. What do I mean by this? I, I went to medical school, completed it. I did residency at Harvard at one of the most difficult programs in the country. I have a PhD in microbiology with an emphasis in tumor immunology. Mm -hmm. Am I smart? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course I'm smart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm smart. Uh -huh. So are you. Okay. Yeah. I did physics in college. Right? Mm -hmm. I had to pass it to get into medical school. Mm -hmm. Okay. I will never apply to be the director of a nuclear physics program. Yeah. It no, has nothing it. to do with my intelligence. It has nothing to do with my capability. It has nothing to do with my level of skill in my profession mm -hmm. it has everything to do with the fact that i have not been trained yeah. to do nuclear physics yeah yeah and there just might be potentially more information that will help guide your decision making as the director of that department if you have the background that particular background yeah. and so this is this is a challenge and particularly in psychiatry because what I think we don't, we are forgetting that psychiatry is a medical specialty. Mm -hmm. And there are people who come to us, yes, the vast majority of people have mental illness, but there are very complicating factors. There are people who come with mental illness as a function of stroke. There are people who come with mental illness as a function of tumor. There are mm -hmm. people who come misdiagnosed with mental illness when they have a tumor. And I've had these patients come and we need to be able to understand and reflect on this. We need to be able to understand the big piece and reflect on the big piece of our practice. That is the medicine mm -hmm. of yeah. the practice. Yeah. And I, you know, was in a space at one point where there were so many directors who were non-medical that the physicians didn't want to bring up discussions about medications, hmm. for example, for yeah. fear that other people would not understand and they would feel like it was a waste of their time and things like that. Yeah. And the liability is enormous mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, if we couldn't bounce this off our, you know, director or whoever, and something happened, it's, our reputation online, our malpractice is the board, is this and that and the other. So we have all these checks and balances pressuring us, but not the autonomy that we need. Yeah. And that is a problem. That's a problem. So you said 
Starting off, we have the perception about physicians not caring to the change in the healthcare system that mm -hmm. doesn't really give the autonomy to the physicians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And three, the pressure, like we're, we're pressured to do the impossible. We're pressured to do things in a way that we just cannot do things. Yeah. And many people choose to leave, but like, you know, every other kind of trauma, there's a certain percentage of people who become deeply depressed. Yeah. And for physicians, the rates of death are astronomically high. Yeah. I mean, I'll add, I'm going to add a four to your list. It's what we see. Like we, I was having a good a conversation about this recently with one of my good friends who was in um, critical care. And we were just talking about like what, what you see and you can't, you feel, you're a deeply feeling person who cares about people, but you can't mm -hmm. feel everything with everybody and then get up and go to the next person, you right. know, and be like, I can't see you in my OBGYN office and talk about the miscarriage that you have had and it's maybe your second or third miscarriage and you really want a child and be in there and really feel it with you and then get, get up and walk next door and see someone for their annual and do a pap and I say I can't but like I did that you know we do that all the time and I did that while I was also miscarrying and then going and then sitting and have the conversation like it takes a lot of emotional juggling to be able to have those experiences and then still come off as a caring position, but you see a lot. And in OB, we always say, in OBGYN, we always say the good is really good, specifically OB, but the mm -hmm. bad is really, really bad. And um, we often, we have no debriefing, we have no protection, we have no way of healing, and we are expected to just go on. I, I you know, was talking to a friend of mine, she was going through a divorce and she never took a break from work. Mm. She powered through. When I was miscarrying, I just went to work like I miscarried. We had, and it was, it was, you know, really stressful because we had just heard the, seen the baby mm -hmm. on the, um, the ultrasound mm -hmm. and we had just listened to the baby's heartbeat. And the next day I started miscarrying and then I just went to work. Yeah. And, and what do you and, do? It because it's what you do that like right. you just go to work and this is the part mm -hmm. of medicine that the general public just doesn't see right. that we just keep going and keep going and keep going. You know, I read one article that where there was this commentary on the fact that the corporate world sees that very well, and so they'll always stick the next patient in to our schedule they'll stick another patient in they'll double book us oh, right that they keep going right because yeah, they okay. they get that we will see the patient and right. we will always see the patient yes. we will never say no right they get that yeah what the general public sees is a very stressed physician who probably hasn't eaten yes or use the bathroom or use the bathroom <laughs> Yeah, was getting limited sleep because they're up until after midnight mm -hmm. um, doing notes, trying within the struggle to take care of them. Yeah. 
And so all of this adds to people who are stressed, people who are depressed Mm -hmm. and people who, when they start to have, I'm using your term now, they're this cognitive distortion are Mm -hmm. more susceptible to the cognitive distortion. Exactly. And the distortion there is, I, me internally cannot do it. Not I am in an environment where I am set up to fail as at my job, but I, Karen Abdul MD cannot care for my patients. Yeah. That's a cognitive distortion. It's not true. We can care for our patients. We need support to do it. Right. But that can drag people down and make them deeply, deeply depressed. Yeah. You know, and if people, you know, and your life is a multidimensional thing. You know, you have an issue at home. You have like you and I both had miscarriages. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like this becomes this overwhelming piece. And that is what contributes to the deep, the high rates of physician suicide. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I'm in this, I don't know if you do any of the like Facebook groups or (laughs) physician groups. I do. Oh my goodness. The divorce. Yes. The divorce Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. so much. And I'm like, it's, it's difficult to be married to a physician. It's difficult to be married to someone who prioritizes their work over all things. One, because they were naturally to get to where they were as someone who was going to prioritize their work. And then two, because then they underwent the indoctrination. That's what I call residency. Exactly. That, <laughs> that you're worth you prioritize anything else you're not a good physician you're not a good physician and you have let down not only yourself and your patients but you've let down your team so then you go through that and you're so used to prioritizing your patients needs over your own you know not your family's needs but your patients Mm -hmm. needs and the care needs so you add all of that and I'm like that's not an easy person and and they have a schedule that mm-hmm. is in line with that, where they work holidays and yes, you know, we're, we're essential. We're essential providers, right? So we go in snow days, right? You know, any pandemics. <laughs> I remember when the marathon bombing happened. I was, I went to work after they shut the city down. I went to work. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, I have to go. Yeah. And, and yeah. My, my former husband, because mm-hmm. I also am going through a divorce. My former husband mm-hmm. was like, what do you mean you have to go? I was like, listen, I have to go. Yeah. And like, they don't understand. They're like, what? What? Yes. <laughs> you don't and have I to just... go, but you have to go in your yes. mind. Yeah. In your mind, you have to go. Have to go. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's this you know, perfect storm. It is. So I don't want to leave everyone. I want to have this conversation because this is a conversation that we need to have. And it's also good, I think, for many of our non-physician listeners to give them some insight and a firsthand view of those experiences, because it's all good for us to have empathy for one another, to understand that people are going through different things. And I will say something that meant so much to me as a physician was when patients would be like, well, how was your weekend? Because I would always say, well, how, yes. you, how was your weekend? And then they'd look at me and be like, well, how was your weekend? And I'm like, 
God, you asked like, well, my weekend was great. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's good for us to be able to have empathy for one another and understand that everybody's just a person going out and living their lives. Um, So kind of reeling it back in for someone who is like, you know what, I'm depressed. And maybe some of this conversation is resonating with them. What would you say are some things for them to do moving forward? I think the very first thing to recognize, and this is based on my work with my patients, but also my own, um, my my personal experience, which I didn't share here and which may or may not be a, a story for another day. The first thing to do is to recognize that you need help Mm. and reach out for it. Mm -hmm. And if you feel like your residency program is not um, going to support you or may not be able to support you because, Mm -hmm. you know, legal, whatever issues, sometimes people want to support and they, you know, for whatever reasons are restricted in supporting reach out to your primary care physician. Uh, The one thing they do is make sure we have health insurance during residency. Mm -hmm. So if you, so you have health insurance, reach out to primary care and just tell them what's going on. That I think is the first step. Mm -hmm. Don't try to take giant leaps. Try to take a baby step. One thing that um, that I learned to do and I started teaching people to do is to do the thing that is easiest for you. Mm-hmm. Can you pick up the phone and dial the physician's number? Mm-hmm. Can you do that? So if that's what you can do, do that. And then just let them know, hey, this is what's going on with me. I remember when I started my exercise program, and this was actually just after I, um, my husband served the divorce papers. Mm-hmm. I knew I had to start exercising. And we all know that exercise helps. It actually increases the size of the hippocampus. <laughs> okay. Helps with depression and the cardiac exercise and everything. I didn't have the energy to exercise and a lot of my patients who are depressed and anxious do not have the energy to exercise. So I literally just said, I'm going to open a door. I'm going to take a step outside. I'm going to look up at the sky and I'm going to do that. That's what I can do. That's what I'm going to do. And that every day, just getting into the habit, eventually i started saying you know let me take a walk Mm -hmm. and then from that it was like i'm gonna walk a mile and then from that it was like you know what i feel like running today Mm. so we as physicians we are type a we are overachievers we are that's who we are okay and we want to achieve that personally like we want to heal right away we need to be patient with ourselves and understand that just the way healing with our patients starts with small steps. 
with ourselves, it starts with small steps. Yes. Right? So these are things that are critically important. One of the things that I do is practice what I call the 30-second body scan. And I practice that sometimes when I find myself getting very stressed, Mm -hmm. uh, when I've had a particularly stressful encounter. I have learned to identify that I hold a lot of tension in my shoulders, in my neck, in my Mm. head. As you say that, I'm like, let me... (laughs) There I do do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, like, if it's really bad, I get chest tightness. When I do the 30 second body scan, I look at where my shoulders are. And if they're up here, I pull them down. Mm. And so for everybody listening, you can imagine kind of like when your shoulders are scrunched and maybe you feel it right now, you realize that you can relax your shoulders. Like, see if you, if you can relax your shoulders, your shoulders were tense. If they can go lower than they are now. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. And sometimes I have to do it in a session, but I've become attuned enough that I can do it in a session without losing my concentration in a session. Okay. That takes a lot of practice. You literally have to practice it every single day. I check my breathing and it's very interesting. When I first started understanding breathing as a part of relaxation, I didn't get it at all. I was like, how is this helping? And often my mind would wander off. Mm -hmm um into into the the churning worry Mm -hmm. um and every time in all of our trainings they would say bring your mind back bring your mind back to the breath and focus on your breath and one of the things that i've learned to do is enjoy feeling my breath Mm -hmm. going in and out of my body it's basically a breath work meditation practice really is what you're describing (laughs) For 30 seconds, you can do it between patients and rounds. You can do it between going to see your patients. Mm -hmm. You know, after you finish charting, especially when we all have these, you know, really complex stories that we have to write in the chart. And it just takes so much time and energy to, to try to figure out how to communicate this. And then we have a bazillion buttons. Well, I used to, I don't have any more, thank God. But <laughs> many people have these bazillion buttons to click for the insurance company and the mm-hmm. mental health and whoever, whoever have to click another set of buttons and you're so stressed afterwards. You can stop, feel your muscles, feel them relaxing, take a breath, enjoy your breath moving in and out do that for 30 seconds and then go on Mm. it makes a difference and it makes a difference to our energy level because you will be surprised at how much energy you use tensing your muscles like Mm. this we don't realize that our static energy is is drained just from the way we hold ourselves when we're stressed so you know, these are some very, very small things that we can do mm-hmm. as physicians. 
But the key thing is to understand that we, as much as we know about how to use medication, you know, when we feel really distressed, we also have a very clear understanding of what it can do for us. And if you need to take an antidepressant, you need to tell yourself what we already know. This is going to take one to two weeks, maybe. It can take up to a month. It can take up to two months. I need to be patient with myself. Mm -hmm. Let the medication work. If you have to take time away to do that, Mm. please do. Yes. Take the medical leave for a week right? and rest and just say, okay, I am, I am taking my medication. That's all I can do right now. Mm-hmm. Rest and take it and then go on. Don't worry about the stigma because if you are becoming healthy, you will become a better physician. Mm-hmm. And that is the most important thing. That's the most important thing for all of us. That's the reason we went into medicine. And that is so true. And it makes me think for all of the people that I've been having these conversations with, all of these physicians who are really reassessing their decisions to go into medicine and where they are right now, a big part of it is they are not doing what they love most. Like deep down, we all went to medical school for a reason. We got excited about the care that we would be able to provide to people. We got excited about being able to help people and being able to heal people. And some way we got lost somehow, whether it was the interactions that we had with our colleagues and or the administration and the higher ups in the profession. But at the root of it, And what is most important is that we love providing care. And if we could just stop for a moment and take a step back and then look at how these careers have developed, how have our careers developed, how have we gotten so far from that excitement and that love that we enjoyed before, back when we were medical students or getting ready to go into medical school, if we can take a step back and reassess and reprioritize to make sure that that, that central thing that we love the most is what we are doing. And we have less of all the other stuff that we don't really care for. Well, that will make a big difference. But when it comes to taking that time, often when I see other people do it and comment on it or share their stories, someone will always jump in to say, oh, it must be nice. It must be nice to be able to take the time to do that. And my first thought is always, well, what's the cost? Is the cost your life? Is the cost your life? Because then one week away from work, two weeks away from work, even if you're not getting paid, seems worth it. Three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, the time that you need to take in order to actually be healthy and then be able to help people, right? Like you can't get sick enough to help sick people. You have to be healthy to be a healer. Let's keep going. You know, the number of medical doctors who are corrupted is no higher than in any other profession. 97 or 8% of physicians are very good, are very empathetic, are in tune to their populations, and are really, really working hard to do their best. 
Yes. And so we are capable, we can do it, we belong. Mm. And when we hear those messages that say we can't or we don't or we shouldn't, we need to start recognizing them as just not true. Yes, and for what they are and what their intention is, and, which is nothing to do with you. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Hmm, I know, after all of that, that just warranted a nice exhale. Yes, <laughs> yes, it really did, it really did. And that is the end of part two of our discussion. When I tell you that we spoke for two hours, we spoke for two hours. There was so much to talk about. Man, this is really a heavy topic, but it wasn't all a heavy conversation. As you can hear, there's laughter. Some of it is laughter through pain. Some of it is laughter just out of humor. But it was really a great conversation about an important issue. And I'm happy that you were able to join us again today. If you are interested in learning more about Dr. Karen Abdul, or you would like to connect with her, you are interested in her practice, Beryllium Psychiatric Services, you can find her at beryllumpsych.com. That's B-E-R-Y-L-L-I-U-M-P-S-Y-C-H. Dot com. She practices in Winchester, Massachusetts. And if you've been enjoying the show, I invite you to leave a positive review wherever you are listening because your reviews are what direct the listeners to the show. They're what let the listeners know, hey, this might be for you. You might enjoy this, especially when you leave positive comments saying what it is that you liked about the show. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me at ladypartsdoctor.com, but you can also connect with me on social media. On Instagram, I'm at ladypartsdoc, D-O-C. I'm on Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube. And then if you want to share a story idea, an episode idea, or just share your story, or you have comments about one of the previous episodes, you can send me a DM on Instagram, or you can send me an email at drhack at ladypartsdoctor.com. That's D-R-H-A-C-K at ladypartsdoctor.com. All right, until next time.